Yes, we're about to hear this history of mass tourism using the British as the case study, but applying far beyond them. A wonderful new, well-researched book called Tourists, How the British Went Abroad, covers more than a century and a half of travel adventures from 1820 through to the 1970s. It concentrates on the big developments of the 19th century and the middle class's love affair, especially with travelling to continental Europe, with the occasional tryst to uh, Turkey and Egypt and Palestine. We learn a little of the pioneers of Victorian travel, Thomas Cook for one, but also about how this new interest neatly matches all sorts of wider phenomena like consumerism and growing egalitarianism with changed etiquette and manners. It's a big brew and I'm pleased to welcome its author, Lucy Lethbridge. Hello there. Hello. Hello, Geraldine. Where shall we go next? (laughs) You say that was a classic question being asked uh, at a certain time in British life, which hadn't ever been asked before, except by aristocrats on the Grand Tour, and that this fundamentally represented a whole new world of discovery. Well, yes, I, I, that was that was a, a young woman who went on a cook's tour in the middle of the nineteenth century, uh, called Miss Jemima, and I put that in because I wanted to show how that was really the first moment, this mid nineteenth century moment, when people are looking at travel in the way that we look at it now, as a as a vast smorgasbord of possibilities, you know, where where rather like choosing a restaurant, you can say, where will I where will I go? Um, and before that, uh, the idea of the holiday itself um, had been uh, something that was, well, it was really um, uh, an unthinkable because you either worked or you didn't work. Um, and most people who travelled were aristocrats who didn't work, so they didn't know what a holiday was because uh, that life was all leisure. And then at the other end of the scale were people who worked all the time and they didn't know what a holiday was either. I mean, they had the occasional feast day off, so religious feast day. But um, the idea that you might take time out from your very timetabled life and do something completely different is a, a, a 19th century idea and one that, of course, we live with now. Oh, yes. Uh, there were so many. I mean, it's very, very amusing, I have to say, um, your your work. <laughs> oh, hilarious, to be honest, um, about the British class system, of course. But, you know, the inherent snobberies, intricate snobberies, I think you, you, call, you call it, um, from those people who did travel or tour, um, watching the middle class arrive. They weren't at all happy about it, were they? <laughs> Well, I think, I'm not sure it's, this is completely confined to the British. I mean, I think the British wear their class on their sleeve, as it were, but I don't think, um, I'm, I'm not sure that you wouldn't be able to say that in most other countries they are appalled by the sight of their countrymen as we are. Uh, but there does seem to be a theme, and certainly in writing about uh, travel, that the moment uh, that people see a, a group of their own uh, their own nationality, um, then they are absolutely appalled by it. Because inevitably, I think, and this may be a rather British thing, we like to travel, um, we like to feel that we're the first person to go somewhere. Well, you had the gorgeous Evelyn War, the writer, the the tourist is the other fellow. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, one is always the traveller. (laughs) 
Uh, one is the intrepid one, and and he, and he is he is the poor old know nothing. Um, the Togginsons and the Jenkinsons started to appear in the horror that uh, people looked on as the as the middle class started to rise. So when do you say, from your research, this this phenomenon really began, moving away from this aristocratic sort of um, aristocratic uh, uh, hobby, I suppose? Well, I started my. Um, I started the book in 1815 because that's the Battle of Waterloo and that marks the end of the Napoleonic Wars, which had really shut off the continent for 25 years for the British. Um, And at this moment, uh, the British start pouring back over, uh, over the channel. And, um, And with that in 1815, sort of ushers in the 19th century changes in steam transport, in uh, industry, in new technologies, um, which uh, stops the the idea of travel from being a completely aristocratic concern. Although I think that the middle classes follow in the footsteps of the Grand Tour. The Grand Tour, Tour was for the young aristocratic gentleman to go abroad and see the classical sites which were considered to be the birthplace of uh, European civilization, And this was the, you know, the classical education that was the final polish mm. for the young gentleman. And the middle classes actually follow that tour. So that, you know, it's still the great sites are, you know, are Rome. They are the great sites of, of, of the Roman empire, really of, of classical Europe. Yeah. And, um, and so that so that so that in in a sense that template is laid down by the 18th century. Well, there's a couple of things occur uh, as you point out. So, so interesting to be reminded of how recent, in a sense, a lot of this is. You know, the arrival of steam and railway. Also, the Great Exhibition, the Prince Albert's Great Exhibition um, in the um, yes. uh, at the middle of the uh, the 19th century, seems to have uh, well. It both brought sort of almost mass tourism to that and then it opened people's uh, perspective on what was possible. Yes, I mean, this extraordinary festival of other nations, which is the Great Exhibition. Um, so people were able to see, you know, the craft and the art and the peoples of other nations all under this enormous crystal palace. Um, ordinary people the, were too. It wasn't just far more than aristocrats. Oh, yes, no, no, this was, this was ordinary. I mean, absolutely ordinary people. And in fact, the great titan of tourism, of course, as, as we understand it now, the early, the father of it, is Thomas Cook. Mm. And the first trip that he arranged, um, as it were, a sort of all-in inclusive trip, was taking people to the uh, Great Exhibition. From, from the Midlands and so on. From the middle, exactly from the from the Midlands, and these were ordinary working people, and he gave them this opportunity for a trip that was entirely arranged for them, so that that you know they paid a certain amount and they got the train ticket and they got the accommodation and they got entry to the exhibition. Yes, um, what? Uh, so Thomas Cook was one of these. I mean, it is amazing to see how he responded. He was a very nice little rice writer, wasn't he, actually? And he, he responded to a lot of this snobbish indignation from a whole range of people uh, very well indeed. But there's another man whom you actually, I think, feel did more to democratise it all um, in a sense, and that was a man called Albert Smith. 
Yes, I mean, Albert Smith, he certainly democratised it, I mean, but he is a vulgarian compared to Thomas Cook. I mean, Thomas Cook was extremely high-minded. He was a temperance campaigner rather than a businessman. That he had this astonishing business acumen was almost by accident because really he saw himself as, as lifting people... Uh, of, of giving ordinary people the chance of the educational expansion of travel. But Albert Smith is a showman, and he is, I mean, he's an extraordinary figure. He was a journalist, a playwright, a, a performer, um, and he himself he did these travels. He particularly, most notably, he climbed Mont Blanc, and he came back and then relived it in these extraordinary sort of panoramic shows that ran for thousands of uh, of performances and were hugely popular and i think that they were a way of uh, both expanding the idea of travel the possibility of travel look i can do it so can you look at me i'm just an ordinary bloke i went up mont blanc um and sort of slightly cutting it down to size so that uh, you know, a lot of people at the time, people like Ruskin and Leslie Stevens, who wrote very eloquently about the Alps, were appalled by what Albert Smith brought in his wake, which was these crowds of trippers wandering over the Alps and despoiling them and with Ro their Roy crowds and their chatter and, and their souvenirs. And roisterers started, I mean, it, it, again, the sort of different um, categories of tourists who started to appear, according to people's own judgment, including roisterers are sort of the lads by the sound of it. Yes, and, and, and a sort of roistering attitude towards this very grand scenery. I mean, it's, it's interesting how um, people like Ruskin describe the Alps in these very reverential terms. They, they describe the natural world um, with awe. They see it as having an awesome grandeur. And of course, that is, you know, awesome grandeur and crowds don't really go together. So the moment that people start using the Alps for winter sports or for um, or for walking tours, um, then the, that, that, the, the grandeur, which is dependent on silence and um, solitude, is ruined. Um, could you possibly talk to us about the motives like you say underneath it all it was it was a desire for something different and yet to be reassuringly familiar as well <laughs> lovely sort of contrast it was a search for Arcadia but it often became a sort of marker boy of inequality those who could take holidays and tours and those who couldn't now just talk to us a bit about how that played out please in that sort of 60 years well I suppose from the middle of the 19th century through until the early 20th well I think it is quite surprising how many people actually went on holiday in the mid in the nineteenth century? Um, given that, uh, well, bank holidays holidays were made uh, uh, statutory in eighteen seventy one, um, but before then, uh, holidays had been entirely at the whim of an employer. Um, but we didn't actually have paid holidays written into 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 legislation until after the second world war mm. so it's quite surprising the number of quite modest people from humble backgrounds with modest pay who actually did travel in the 19th century i mean it was a vast expansion um and so you get lots and lots of tears of holiday makers you get uh 
you get the grand holiday maker who is always in retreat from the crowds. And I don't think that's really changed. And you then you get the the group holiday, and that's the new idea. And um, that was Thomas Cook's group, idea, think, wasn't it? That's Thomas Cook's mm. idea. And I think the group is is a very interesting kind of holiday uh it, it it inculcates a particular kind of holiday spirit that uh, is does have the reassurance of um, being surrounded by people who are like yourself uh, and with whom to have this adventure. It's very attractive. I found I am someone who doesn't like a holiday crowd, and yet I read about these groups um, and the read the diaries from these groups, and one can't help but feel that there is a there is there is something about the sharing of an adventure with people either who are uh, you know already or people you actually meet um and the pleasure of the of the traveling companion is almost as important as the pleasure of the new place you're visiting mm. um and i i think that 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 is something that holds true today yeah. Let me just tell listeners, Lucy Lethbridge is my guest and she's written this wonderful book, uh, Tourists, How the British Went Abroad. And as I said, it's much more pertinent. Uh, it's pertinent to us as much as the British, I think. Look, there were some real surprises in your book. I, I found it extremely hard to fully grasp the story from about, uh, about page 218 about how um, the Nazis had a Department of Tourism, a Committee for Tourism, and so Germany became a very favoured destination in the 30s prior to the war, and they had tours of Dachau. Yes, isn't that fascinating? I mean, I I had no idea of that either. Um, but the the Nazis used tourism in the twenties. Um, well, the first of all, the, the the Weimar Republic and then the Nazi regime in the early thirties used it as a, a a form of propaganda. It was a way of uh, establishing the new post-war Germany as a um, uh, as a place which was full of new ideas and um, and that and tourism was very much a tool for that and and it was an extremely popular destination extraordinary and also it was um, the tar- the travel industry became the source of um, attracting spies there was a major James Lannan who was a tour operator who became who started working for what the equivalent is now as MI6 all of which makes sense when you think about it but I certainly hadn't thought about it yes it was a very good way of of gathering espionage and major Lamin used to ta- and his wife in fact used to take these uh, motor coach tours over the continent and um, I think that there's uh, what better cover Hidden in than plain a sight. group of, of genteel, genteel ladies <laughs> when you have a spot of espionage on the side. Look, um, there's all sorts of things that you chart. Uh, the emergence of camping, caravanning, the emergence of the beach, which, you know, you say 500 years ago, the beach was the haunt mainly of fisher folk and um, the ship and the shipwrecked, whereas, you know, sunbathing became something that didn't exist before 100 years ago. So there's this, again, that really quite transformation of appetites and etiquette, isn't there? Oh, completely. And I think that the, the sun, uh, the uh, radical transformation in our view of the sun, which is um, one of the main drivers of the modern holiday, of course, when people go abroad now, they're looking for sun. A hundred years ago, 
or a hundred, certainly 150 years ago, you didn't look for sun unless you were ill. Um, and even then, you only looked for mild sun. You certainly didn't look for burning sun, for sun that turned you brown. Um, so you may have looked for warmth, but not this 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 idea that you would actually do nothing but lie on a beach and get brown is would be in, have been unthinkable. But there was a change of attitudes towards um, tanning, which. Um, I think came about, there's a, a lot of reasons, towards the end of the 19th century, very, very pale skin came to be associated with consumption and tuberculosis, which of course was very, very common. Um, and the tuberculosis sufferer was always very, very pale and had this, this very translucent complexion. Um, and so suddenly the ruddier look of people who worked outside and were fit and healthy, which had one be, once been the mark of a manual labourer, suddenly became the look of someone who was not ill. And that's a huge change. Melanoma territory too, unfortunately, it has to be said. But the... <laughs> Indeed. and But of course, we, who, who knew that in yeah. the 1920s yeah. when people were baking with olive oil all over them? Well, Lucy, you've done a marvellous work of research. It's very entertaining and revealing. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so pleased. I was very happy to be with you. Lucy Lethbridge and her book is Tourists, How the British Went Abroad. And I'll tell you, you will love it.